Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I don't know why I laugh whenever I start that. Maybe because I just can't believe that I get to do this, like in my lunch times and spare time, and I get to hang out with most unbelievable people. And I was saying to my kids the other day that I think I'm a real failure at a lot of things, but I'm a failure at one thing in business, and that's the fact that I feel like I want to spend so much more time with certain people in the business who are really, really impactful and nice and have a great vibe. And I fail when it comes to figuring out how to do that more. And sometimes I think these podcasts are a way for me to actually just kill two birds with one stone where I get to sit down with the people that I really love in the business. And I know it's shocking to my guest today, Jonas Larson, that would actually think to himself that a large Jewish man loves him. But he does because there's certain people in the business that every time you talk with them, whether you get a yes or a no, they always make you feel like a million bucks and they always make you realize that maybe this crazy business isn't as bad as everybody says it is. Maybe it's not as hurtful and damaging as everybody thinks it might be. And so I'm grateful for the time I have, and I appreciate it. And I appreciate him coming here, and I appreciate all the people I get to spend time with who have been so gracious. So uh, firstly, I'd like to thank you all again for supporting the show. It's crazy. It's so humbling. And to be able to start something and do something from scratch when everybody tells you not to do it 
and says, Barry, uh, this will hurt you. This is damaging. Don't do it. But I always wanted to do more and try to do something that maybe can reach people and help people a little bit more in this business because I feel like I can't help as many people as I, I want to help. So thank you so much and thank you for supporting us. And we're going to Montreal, as you probably know, for the second time in three years, which is very, very great. And I just got an email from somebody who I identified that I wanted to interview up in Canada because it's his home country and a guy who's had probably a 35-year career and he just emailed me back with his team and told me, of course, I would love to do the live podcast in front of about 300 people in Montreal and tell the world that I'm coming and I'll be there and that's Howie Mandel. So thank you all out there for being so supportive. Without you guys doing all this great stuff for the show and talking it up and saying that it's doing okay and we'd never be able to get somebody like Howie. So thank you, Howie. Thank you to his team. Thank you, Michael Rodenberg and Rich Thurber, who works with Howie as well. Thank you, Rich. We look forward to seeing you all in Montreal. All right. As I look at my guest, Jonas Larson, as he's dozing off, I always think, as you know, of what I'm going to say. And today is going to be a little bit different. And I hope that he understands how I'm talking there's a light at the end of the tunnel because I'm going to go to a place as I'm looking at him that's probably not the place he would want me to go or think I should go or the audience thinks I should go, but I'm going to go there. So as some of you know, when I was younger, I was married and I was 26 and my wife was 23 and she passed away unexpectedly. And I didn't know that was going to happen, obviously. It just happened. And when something like that happens in your life and you're out in the city, you don't really know how to handle it. So you spend a lot of time in bed. You don't have a lot of people who you can trust and you don't know what to do. And in my case, there was a comedian from Rhode Island named Ed Regine who was a used car salesman. And he would come every week, one, two days, be knocking on my door without any warning and say, come on, let's go, get out of bed. We're going, we're going to a movie, we're gonna do whatever. He'd send me gifts, he'd do whatever, he'd spend time with me, he'd always be there for me. That doesn't mean that other people weren't there for me, but they were back in another town, far away. And he figured out a way to get me out of my funk and made me realize that there were reasons for everything, as horrible as they are, and that everything was going to be okay. And I credit him with helping me get out of where I was and supporting me when I felt things were sort of falling apart in my life and I felt like there was a possibility that I could lose everything that I'd worked hard for. And I'm grateful to him. And when it came time to helping him, whatever gigs I had when I got back on my feet, I would just give him you're headlining here, you're doing that, you're whatever it is, because at that time in Boston, that meant the world to me. And so I want to share something. As I talk about Jonas, how I set this up, first thing I want to do is tell you that he has an amazing assistant. I'm not going to mention her name because I don't know if I'm allowed to do that, but I'm just going to say that she's amazing and she's helped me tremendously in getting this interview on the books. And I happen to know something personal about her which is that she lost her brother recently who passed away. 
And when you're an assistant to somebody and something devastating happens like that, you got to go. You got to take care of things. But you're worried. You're worried about your job. You're working for a great guy. You want to make sure that you have your standing, but you got to go. You got to take care of yourself. And I happen to know that this man sitting across from me did everything in his power to make sure this person felt comfortable, felt loved, flowers, flowers to the home, anything she wanted, as much time as she wanted off. When she came back, didn't matter if she was having a tough day, needed to take a half day, whatever. He always said, whatever you need, whatever it is, you take the time, I'm there for you. When she even missed a concert, for somebody who she really wanted to see, Justin Bieber. I happen to know that this man across from me arranged tickets for a concert in Miami for her to go. Now, what happens when you go to Miami, where she's from? You leave the office. You leave work. You leave what's going on. This guy has a lot going on. But he knew something that was really important, that your work if you really, really handle things the right way and you really make an impact in business, your work is like a family and you have to figure out how to deal with things that come about and still be able to do your business. Yes, he knew that he was going to have a higher workload. Yes, he knew there was going to be a temp in the office or somebody coming in that was going to fuck things up probably. Not their fault. It happens. They don't know what's going on. But he was willing to take that risk that nothing was life-threatening to make sure that this person had whatever they needed, the support system they needed, the time they needed to figure things out. And a lot of people don't know that about Jonas Larson. And a lot of people who are in this business know that that's a one-in-a-million quality. You would think that everybody you run into when something bad happens to somebody, they'd be like, Hey, yeah, do whatever you need, take whatever you need. But they don't mean it. They don't mean it. And when the person spends an afternoon crying in the bathroom a month later, they don't tolerate it. But I happen to know Jonas Larson does and supports it and wants this person to be the best representation of herself. And the whole company in him was behind her. And you can feel that that has taken her to another level and you can feel that she's going to be a great person in this business and she will always remember Jonas Larson. She will never ever forget him like I will never forget my man Ed Regine from Boston. So as I wrap up this cold open I just want to say something about this guy that you also don't know. One of the busiest guys you will ever want to meet. The guy is in charge of so many different things at Comedy Central and running so many different initiatives, which I'll talk about in the bio, that I don't even know how this guy's even here. But he figures out a way to do it. And the one quality he has as well, which is amazing, which ties into what I talked to before, is that you can call this guy up and you know that he has a hundred people on his call sheet. You know that he has project after project going that he has to go to a run through or do whatever. But when he's on the phone with you, you are the fucking man. You feel like you are everyone in the world and there's no one else in his world that exists. And that's how his assistant feels. That's how the people who deal with him feel. 
And that's how I feel every time I deal with him. And let me tell you something. In the six years that he's been at Comedy Central, I have only heard no. And I'm happy. Doesn't bother me. Because one day I may hear a yes. And I'm just grateful that I get on the phone. And if he says no to something, I respect that. I respect it. And that means something. And when he does say yes... I'll respect that, too, because I know I'll finally get the opportunity to work very, very closely with them on a production as opposed to just with talent and working closely with them. So the lesson, if there is any, for this crazy, crazy cold open where we're going to have to tap Jonas on the shoulder and wake him up after this is the fact that if you want to get to the next level, I'm going to tell you a little sidelight about something. Another thing where I'm not going to mention names this goes back to the first podcast I had with Doug Herzog. There was a person at Comedy Central who I loved. Everybody loved her. Amazing person who occupied the job that Jonas is doing. So special, so wonderful. Like a daughter or a sister to Doug Herzog, like family. But sometimes things happen in people's lives and how they intertwine with business and you have to make changes, difficult, gut-wrenching, hurtful changes. And then you realize that you're replacing somebody who's family, somebody who was loved and somebody who was considered to have done a good job. And when you get that job, you have to come in and that's big shoes to fill, not just in terms of the work, but in terms of how you feel and how you fit in as part of the family. And not only has Jonas done that, but he has thrived and taken this position to a level that I have never seen before. So all I can say is this, if you're out there, wherever you are, whatever business you're doing, if you can be in a situation where you treat people with the kind of respect that this guy treats people with, if you can deal with somebody's personal tragedies within the office space, keep the rocks going up the hill and make that person feel like they have the greatest support staff in the world and come into a job where the pressure is a hundred times greater than anything else because you're replacing somebody who was family. You are going to thrive in whatever business you have. And I can guarantee you over and over again, there is no question in my mind that you will have the kind of career that Jonas Larson is having. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man 
who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me. Very, very happy and excited to be here after that gut-wrenching, intestine-ripping-out cold open that I did. I'm so sorry, everybody, but it had to be said. And now I'm going to introduce the man I'm with here, and I'm so, so happy that he's here and it's such an honor to have him here. Such a great guy. Before I introduce him, I honestly feel like, I don't know, it's like when you're around certain people, you feel like you just want to cry. They're such nice, nice people, and you can feel those people. You know it. I always say, you know, they walk in the room, and it's like, ah, everything's going to be okay. And then there's those people that walk in the room like all of my producers and the hair on the back of your neck stands up. It's horrible. No, I'm kidding. They're wonderful people. <laughs> um, anyway, here we go. Jonas Larson is a native of Denmark and has been Comedy Central Senior Vice President of Talent and Specials since June of 2010. He also reports to Kent Alterman, another guest on the show, President of Comedy Central, who also works under Doug Herzog, who was my first guest here on the podcast. Larson oversees the production and development of original specials and 10 pole events, such as the Emmy-nominated Comedy Central Roast franchise, which includes the recent smash hit roast of Justin Bieber, James Franco, and Charlie Sheen. The all-star stand-up programming for the channel, including stand-up series such as The Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail, Adam Devine's House Party, and This Is Not Happening, and a diverse slate of specials like the Peabody Award-winning D.L. Hughley, the Endangered List, the Emmy Award-winning Night of Too Many Stars benefit, and the critically acclaimed Jeff Ross Roast Prisoners live at Brazos County Jail. I just saw that. I loved him. I love Jeff Ross. I think I've represented him three times. <laughs> He's fantastic. <laughs> and if you're a comic out there, I think Dave Chappelle was the first to say it that I heard a comic say, find your lane. Whatever you do, find your lane and ride it 
as far as you can. And Jeff Ross has found his lane. He is also responsible for Comedy Central's ongoing talent development and relations, as well as stand-up acquisitions and live touring and festivals. Prior to joining Comedy Central, Larson was an executive producer of non-scripted television and formed his own production company, Y27 Entertainment, in 2005 with Anthony Ross, together developing One vs. 100 for NBC and executive producing the studio-based competition series, Master of Champions for ABC. Prior to that, working with Stone Stanley Entertainment, Larson produced a Joe Schmo show for Spike TV, which became a breakout hit and was at the time Spike TV's highest rated non-scripted original program. Larson's forthcoming projects at Comedy Central include the four-night comedy competition series Jeff Ross Presents Roast Battle, the documentary special Jeff Ross Roast the Police, can't wait for that, the comedy and music special Goddamn Comedy Jam, amazing, amazing, you gotta see that the weekly live MTV series Wonderland, and an untitled comedy documentary series created with another period and drunk history executive producers and director Jeremy Connor, in addition to an upcoming presentation of the next Comedy Central roast, which we all can't wait for. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest. Everybody wake him up. Jonas Larson. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me. How do you sit through all of that? I just did. <laughs> 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 I'm so sorry. No, it's such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's great uh, to see you. It's good to see you, man. Tell me the last time you got home and you sat in the fetal position, you said, I didn't come across as a nice guy today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's been times in my life when, when that's happened. But, you know, I mean, listen, I, as you sort of said in the intro, you know, I try to treat the people that I work with the way I want to be treated, the way I want the world to work. You know, why can't we, you know, treat each other with respect and be honest and 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 be have compassion for other people? Uh, it doesn't feel like this business, even though it can be, you know, tough at times, uh, should exclude that. And it feels like that is a it's it's just the way it should be. In my in in my view, you know, and that's how I sort of that's how I approach it. Um, and you know, you mentioned my my assistant, my wonderful assistant Jackie, who's incredible and has been um, such an amazing you know uh, help uh, and 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 partner in many things. And you know, this is what you should do. Of course, always support the people that you work with. How could how can you ask them to go the extra mile for you if you don't do that for them? That's so true. Were you always naturally that way, or was there a point in time where the switch happened? Hmm. I I think there's always been part of me that I, I don't think it was a it was there was a time when when I switched over. I think it's obviously been cultivated over time. I've seen other people act in ways that I don't condone, and I would never do to other people. And, and you learn from that and you learn from the, the people who are around you uh, and, and you, you see what, what's working for them. And, and, and to me, my personality doesn't lend itself to be an asshole. I, I, I like people and I, in, I'm interested in people. And, and as such, I, I, you know, I just, I, I like connecting with people. And I like to connecting with people about ideas and, and, and you know, and, and their personal lives in a way that, that, that just, that 
the negative part of it just can't exist. I, I just don't, you know, it's just not part of me. So I don't think there was a, a, a sort of a, a point in my life where I suddenly it all clicked in. Um, but I think over time, it, it certainly has gotten, you know, I, I have learned many lessons of what not to do. Um, but, you know, I'm sure I've had moments in my career and my life where I've done and said things that I regret, um, as has everybody. Uh, but you try to reflect on that and you try to learn from that and you try to move on and, and, and be an example to the people that you work with. Um, because how can you really ask people to go into battle with you if you're not going to have their backs? You work with so many different people uh, because you're doing specials, a lot of different specials that involve an enormous amount of people. It could be argued that you at the network touch more talents' lives, even if it's briefly, than anybody else at the channel. And obviously, if you take a cross-section, if I went out on the street here and just took 100 people and interviewed them and analyzed them, there's not going to be 100 people who are like you and have your philosophy. You're going to run into people who are brilliant, but don't have the emotional tools in their toolbox to be the kind of person that you are. How do you handle that when you have somebody, let's say you're doing a roast and you know somebody's brilliant and they're hot and they're so powerful now, but you also know that they're trouble. But you take the risk because you probably know you have a great support staff in the network. You have Joel Gallum who can navigate through the good and the bad. And I've interviewed Joel for the show. But let's say there's a major talent on the roast that you know will get a huge rating, but you know they don't live their life by the philosophy you live. And you know during the production they're not going to live their business life like you live your business life. How do you handle that? <laughs> well, I don't judge. You know, I, I think when you, when you do the roast, there's a certain truth to the roast that you can't es escape. You know, the roast is rooted in, in, in truth, you know, in, in things that they have done or said or, 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 or been part of. Um, so I think, I think they always come to the roast in a, so, so perhaps it's, it, it may not be the greatest example because I think once you decide that you're ready to do the roast, you're ready to face some of the things that you have dealt with in your life. And to me, that takes balls and, and it takes uh, a certain type of, of human being to be able to do that. And I respect that. And, and you work with them and you work with them in a way that, you know, helps them look good and, and move past some of these issues. You know, Charlie Sheen, you mentioned, you know, we did, which was an amazing roast. And he was an amazing person to work with having you know, gone through a, 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 you know, a very public sort of meltdown and, and a, a, and been dealing with some, some personal demons that, you know, none of us can even sort of comprehend. Um, but you find the humanity in people. And I think, I think that's what the roast does, you know, when it's, when it works the best is that, you know, it's not just a, a, a mean fest. It's not just people throwing insults. There's something underneath it. You know, there's the old, you know, adage of we only roast the ones we love and you find something about them that you love, even if 
the whole package isn't, you know, exactly if, if you know, if it isn't, you know, you're, you aren't going to be best friends forever. Um, so I, I think, I think you always go into it with an open mind. You try to be open to their ideas. You try to be open to who they are and be sensitive to some of the things that they're sensitive to and have honest conversation. But I, th I always find that honesty is probably the best way forward, you know, um, and, 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 and being straight with people. I want to ask you about one other thing about your job that always fascinated me. It's very, very hard to find people who can roast. And I always say there's a reason why Jeff Ross does every roast. It's not just because he was there in the beginning. Uh, and I actually was grateful to be with him at the time when we had John Pierre and Freddie Roman. We brought him over to Comedy Central in the beginning. Uh, that was a, a great meeting and I'll always remember it. And he'll always be a part of the roast. But he's also part of the roast, even if he wasn't that guy, because he always does the job. And it's hard. Roasting is a really hard thing. It, it looks easy, but it's really hard. And a lot of great, great people you will never see on the roast because they don't have that muscle. So I'm not saying it's not hard to find those people to roast. It is hard. But I would argue, as I've said before, that you break stars. You break stars like Saturday Night Live breaks stars like Paul Feig is breaking stars on his movies. And that's got to be a really gratifying thing. So the thing I wanted to ask you was, you have this positive thing where you're breaking stars and you know every year you have the opportunity to do so and you're looking at tapes and going to see people. And your choices that you've made in the past six years have worked. People have broken. And that's got to be a great feeling. And they break immediately. It's not like you're on Saturday Night Live. You have to go one year, two year, and three, and you break one roast. And that person can just take off. But on the other side of the coin, how do you deal with it when you take Justin Bieber? This is a guy, I think he has, what does he have, two billion <laughs> views on YouTube? I think so, something like that. You know, so this guy is coming on the road. He doesn't have to do the roast. But he's doing it because he wants to do what sort of Hugh Grant did 15 years on The Tonight Show after he had that dalliance with the prostitute. Jay Leno comes on, what were you thinking? You take the piss out of yourself and then everybody loves Hugh Grant again. And I think it was a smart move for Justin Bieber. But how do you deal with the representatives and the artists knowing there's got to be anxiety? Like, you know, somebody's going to go over the line way over the line here somewhere. We can't control 10 people. How do you make them feel comfortable knowing that nothing's going to get on the air that's going to be bone crushing? Sure. I, I, well, first of all, no one has edit rights on, on the roast. You know, we, but at the same time, we obviously, this, the roast isn't about sort of surprising you with something that you didn't see coming. Um, cause we pull from the pool that's already out there in the, in the public consciousness. It's, it's, you know, anything you've done that's been in the news is fair game. Um, and you know, when we sit down and when we book someone to be the roastee, uh, on a roast, um, like a Charlie Sheen or a Justin Bieber or a James Franco, you, we have a conversation with them before anything happens. And the conversation is very simple. It's like, do you know what you're getting into? <laughs> Do you really know what's going to be coming at you? 
because we pull no punches. And we always say, and, and I think this is so true, and this is why we no one has added rights on 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 the roast, is that you if if you go out there and you don't address the obvious elephants in the room room, and in many cases there are several, um, the audience is gonna call BS on it. And and it's not going to feel authentic. It isn't, isn't gonna it's gonna feel edited. But there's a very clear process that happens. You have that initial conversation, and then we start the, the booking phase, finding the people uh, from their lives and the comics that are going to put the show, you know, out there and, and, and make it compelling. And the first thing we, we look for is a roast master, someone who's going to be the master of ceremonies, someone who can keep the show moving and, and be funny, and, and, but also have some sort of personal connection to the roastee. Um, it's, a, it's an important part of the roast, um, and it's a very hard thing to book because it requires a lot of time. There's not a lot of people that can you can put that burden on their shoulders and, and for them to shine. Uh, so it's very important. And then, of course, you fill out the dais with people who are, A, representatives of their lives, but also people who have a sense of humor about themselves because they're going to take some of the heat as well, uh, and, and people who can be funny and can deliver. Uh, and I think we have a pretty good track record of, of, of picking good people and working with them to make sure that they shine. But without a doubt, everyone goes through phases of anxiety and going, what the fuck did I do? Why did I say yes to this? Because this seems, you know, a lot more anxiety inducing than I had thought when I initially said yes. Um, but also without fail, every single one of them come out on the other side <laughs> going, this was one of the most amazing um, and fun uh, uh, experiences of my life. And without fail, because it is, it is, there's a certain amount of catharsis for them um, and the relief of the anxiety. And also the roast is way worse in your head before you go up on that stage than it is in real life. You can think of all the terrible things you've done in your life that you think you're going to get hit on. And then you realize that everyone who's there are rooting for you. They want you to be great. They want to love you. And all you have to do as a roastee is sit there and laugh and have a good time. If you do not laugh, you're not going to look good. And we always say that. Just have a good time. Laugh. Have a good time, even if you don't think it's funny. Laugh. Because that's what people at home see. That's what people in the audience see. They see you taking it. And even if it hits a little bit of a, a nerve somewhere, um, it's, it's important that you don't show that. Because the greater good of what the roast can actually do for someone, on one level, it makes you cool because it's cool to do the roast these days. Um, but it also shows the fans and the world that you have a sense of humor about yourself and it humanizes you in a way that nothing else can do um, because it really is rooted in something really real. And people do put themselves out there in a way um, that is unparalleled. No one else, no, no other show on television puts people in that position and, and you know, uh, and comes away as a, as a success. So that's the balance that we always walk. And, you know, with dealing with, with personalities and the anxiety, 
I mean, these are all natural things that I think we would all feel. And I think we can all sort of relate to it. And so when we when we interact with them and with their representatives and in many cases, you know, the agent or the manager who's, you know, um, representing the, the roastee will will help us, you know, manage that part of it uh, and and, you know, um, and are able to to be very, very straight with their with their client about like, hey, it's going to be OK. I always say it's going to be fine. It's there because I know, first of all, there's no other option. It has to be great. We have a tremendous amount of responsibility uh, to continue to build and elevate the roast like we've been doing. Um, uh, and, and we have, you know, a tremendous responsibility to the roastee to make them look great. I don't want anyone to leave the roast not looking like a million dollars and feeling great about their choice because they are my calling card for the next roast. If I have someone out there going like that was the biggest mistake of my life. Well, guess what? My, my franchise is done. And so that can never happen. So, you know, we go to great lengths and I, I've, I've gotten a few gray hairs here and there from, from the stress that comes with that. Uh, and sometimes it can get really dicey and down to the wire on booking this show and figuring it out and, you know, but so far so good. And, and I think, I think we, we just take great care in working with them and listening to them. And I think that's really important, listening to their concerns and addressing them and not dismissing them because um, they're all valid and, and, you know, we work with them. I have such amazing memories about the roast and how an artist can get the opportunity. I mean, there's so many instances, but I just think back to Whitney Cummings and trying very hard to get her the roast. And at first they gave her the opportunity to write for the roast. And of all crazy things that you wouldn't think, she wrote Snoop Dogg's comedy rap. It could be argued that he had the best set of anybody that year. And he wasn't even a comedian. And so I guess you'd say she over delivered as a writer and then trying to create an opportunity for her to be on camera, but she hadn't really done anything yet. So thankfully, another guy who's done the roast, Tom Arnold, did me a favor and he was gracious enough to put her on a benefit roast that was being filmed for archival purposes. And she did really well. And I sent that to Doug and the group and she was able to get the opportunity, but even getting the opportunity, if you're an artist out there, you still have to go in and you still have to make your mark and you have to make your mark on a show with unbelievable people who probably many have done it over and over again, but you are not going to break as a star unless you figure out some way to shine in your own unique way and then get a helmet. It's all over. Why do you think that you have what appears to be the eye to know who's going to do well at a roast because this is one of the most difficult things about your job and your team's job for those of you out there all over the world you want to see a stand-up and you want to decide whether they're worthy of a special you go to the improv and watch them do an hour or you have them film it and you look at it and you know they can do it there aren't roast comedy clubs Nobody can go over the improv and, hey, listen, I'm going to do my hour of roast jokes or my 10 minute roast. There's no place to do it. There's no place to try it. Even if you try to simulate it, which Jeff Ross is probably the best at trying to do it, 
before the roast, he would go and he would just bring somebody from the audience and have them sit there and say, look, I'm going to try my roasting. You are now Charlie Sheen. And he'd run through it. But you can't submit normally an audition tape of person roasting to Jonas unless there's some unique special event that happens at a club once a year or something where they're roasting the club owner or a comp. At my club in New York, they used to roast me every year. But then the roasts weren't happening. So... So I'm just curious for our audience, isn't it nerve wracking uh, giving the keys to the kingdom to somebody who no one knows? You're putting them on a dais. They can't be cut out. They're there. They're sitting there. You can't edit them out. If they do a poor job, you have to figure out something. It's not like Def Jam. Russell Simmons used to have an extra comic every show. Why'd they have them? One person bombed, he just cut them out. No one knew. So anybody could be edited. There was nothing, but yours can't be. So how have you been so successful with your team finding and identifying these people where there's literally very little evidence at all that they have the muscle to roast? Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a good question. And and the we sort of look back on, on, I mean, Whitney, she was a writer. It was clear that she was a great writer on the roast and um, she was um, a talented performer, even though, I mean, she was outperforming, but no one had seen her on a, on a big stage, but we knew she could write the material. We knew she had the voice for it. Right. And, and, um, and we knew she could perform it and, and you sort of, you take a leap of faith sometimes. But it's a gut and you, you look at them, you go like this, this comic will kill on the roast. There's just a certain sort of like style of their comedy that just lends itself to it. Now, Amy Schumer is, is probably a great example of, of, of someone who was just, I mean, she was just ready to pop at that time. We caught her right at the right moment in the, with the right roast, which was the highest rated roast we've ever done. Uh, the Charlie Sheen roast. We worked with her on, you know, she's done a lot of different things with us. And so we had worked with her for, for some time. So we had a sense of her personality and, and Amy is incredibly smart um, and insightful. And, you know, um, she just has a point of view that's just so incisive. And, you know, she comes at it with this great charm and, and she's incredibly likable. Uh, and, but she can say things that other people can't say. And that's what you need in a roaster is be able to, you know, charm the audience. So when, when you say something that is so wrong or, or, you know, off color or that they're with you. And she had that thing. It was really, I mean, it was, it was, it was incredible to see it, you know, unfold. I mean, cause you know, truthfully, it certainly was a leap of faith, but I think we were all, Kent and myself, were convinced, and I, we had actually zero doubt that she was going to destroy on the roast. We knew she was ready. There was just something about her, where she was in her career, where her material was headed, that there was just, she was perfect. And, um, and I, you know, I, I think Charlie and, and his team all saw that and were blown away by her. Uh, blown away. And, um, you know, I think Amy was nervous going into this. She knew it was a big opportunity for her, but she beyond rose to the occasion. She went in there and charmed the hell out of everybody um, in that, you know, 
unbelievable way that she has, you know, and and that was really sort of her big first big moment in on, on a national stage. And, and it was exciting. I mean, Jeselnik, you know, he's another one started as a writer um, on the roast. Again, he's one of the greatest roast writers. You know, he's he is a master of 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 these twisty one liners that, you know, he has or these jokes that, you know, send you down a path. And then, you know, he turns it around on you. Nick DiPaolo and Christopher Walken are the baby. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. He's he's a handsome he's a handsome fellow. So, um, but but he um, he was he he just you know in the writers' room he was always he was always one of those guys. And he is a he goes to these dark places. He always and I think that's when the roast works best is when you go up to the line and then you cross it and then you come back, but you cross it again. And and I think I think if if you don't have a, a, a roast where you squirm a little bit, but you got to laugh, but you got to squirm and groan a little bit with a laugh, then we've succeeded. If it's all squirm and groans, it's that's a disaster. Um, so I think with him, he was another one that really went out there and and destroyed. I think the first one he did was the Trump roast. Um, and, you know, he's such a confident guy. I remember him going like, you know, I get nervous for these guys, right? They're, these are, these are the this is the first time he's and I remember going like, "How are you feeling? You you, you know you, you nervous?" And he's like, "No, I got this." Like, he was so confident in his, and he was. I, I you know when he submitted material, you know everybody submits material not for our approval, but just so we can vet it and make sure that there's any sort of you know red flags or duplicated jokes or anything like that. I remember him submitting his jokes for the Sheen Roast, and he sent us a sheet with 10 jokes. And that was it. And he's like, and we're like, well, don't you want to send us, you know, 15, 20 jokes so you have some to, if case some of them aren't going to work? And he's like, no, they're all going to kill. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He was right. They all killed. And, and, it's, and, and that's when in the editing process, it becomes really tricky. You know, what do you keep in? What do you not keep in? But, but he's one of those, again, he had this confidence. He had, he had the right skills and, and the right type of delivery to really make him, you know, to put him out there and, 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 and see him shine. Um, Natasha, same thing. Natasha Legero. Natasha Legero. She's, you know, she's another incredible uh, roaster who's done a couple of roasts and, same thing, you know, you start seeing like there's something about her comedy and her point of view that you can see her out on that stage. Again, everything goes goes better with a little bit of sugar. And she's so delightful and sweet and, you know, but she can go to places and say things that, you know, us, us, us mortals can't. And and in a way that that makes it, you know, um, I think I think exciting for the for the audience to watch and fun. Um, so I think that that really is sort of what we look for when we look for someone new, like Pete Davidson on the Justin Bieber roast. You know, he was someone that, you know, we love Pete and, and, you know, we, we've just done a, a special with him, but, you know, he was, he had, he was on, on SNL and, uh, Justin was a big fan of his and really wanted him on the roast. And, and frankly, I, you know, I think Pete, we didn't know if, if, if he could, but he was so excited about it. And when we started sort of talking to him about it and, and getting the sense like, oh, wow, he's really game. He's going to go there 
and really come to play, that's what you want from someone. You don't want someone that's going to hold back and be afraid of it. When you're up on that stage, when you're at that podium, you better bring it because that's what the audience expects. And truthfully, that's what the roastee expects. They want to just get it out there and have a good time. And, and they want you to be funny. Um, but of course, you know, it's, it's always a, a, a fine line on the roast of what people find funny and, and, you know, what crosses the line. And that's the exciting part of it. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Last question about the roast. Somebody who is near and dear to a lot of our hearts, Greg Giraldo. It could be argued one of the hearts and soul of the roast. He'd be the go-to guy, would always open every roast and start it off with that thing you needed, that gut punch that just took you acceleration, always delivered. How did you guys work through not only just personally the loss of such an amazing guy and such a great talent, but the next year you're coming out and you got to go at it without one of your anchors. What was that like? Can you take us back that year sure. and how you figured out how to handle that? And probably with him looking down from the heavens, you'd want to look up and say, are you endorsing this plan? <laughs> well, you know, he was one of the the special ones on the roast, for sure. I, I had the pleasure of working with him on the, the David Hasselhoff roast, I think. And, uh, and you know, he really was special, right? You know, he came out and he always brought the energy and he had that crazy sort of like, you know, speed to his set and, and, um, and uh, but always smart, always come at it from, came at it from a, an unexpected place. And I think, you know, the next roast we did, which I believe was Trump, um, was, you know, that was, that was, that was hard, you know, like we, we missed him, you know, he was an important piece of, of it and something that, that was missing. And I, I, we talked a lot about it and sort of like, how do we, you know, you can't replace him. He's a one of a kind, um, but we wanted to honor him. And, and I think Jeff did something in his set, um, yeah, and now, of course, I can't remember exactly what what he said, but he wanted to make sure there was a tribute to him in there, but in a roasty way. And and that was his send off to him in a public way, you know, and 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 I think I think within the roast community, there is a certain 
brotherhood or sisterhood that that people want to be remembered in a in a certain way as someone who could dish it but also take it and and i think i think um jeff really sort of paid tribute to that um and and we wanted to send him off with a with a you know a nice roasty goodbye and i think he achieved that and i i think i think it was really special um but it was it was a hard time it was hard it's hard to replace someone like that and both you know in your hearts and 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 of course you know on on the show um so um so i don't know if that really makes sense but you know that was kind of kind of how we we processed it let's go way way back <laughs> take us back to where you grew up what the socioeconomic dynamic back then and what your family was like and what your first inspiration was to get in this crazy business <laughs> Well, I grew up a poor black child. No, <laughs> uh, I, um, uh, that's from the jerk. <laughs> Just, um, now, uh, I grew up in Denmark. I grew up in Elsinore, um, which is a, uh, small town north of Copenhagen, uh, in Denmark. If anybody's familiar with it, it's a tiny, tiny country of 5 million people. And you weren't speaking English back then. Uh, I did not speak English. I mean, you, you start, you have English in school from, at the time it was fifth grade. Now it's first grade, but at the time it was fifth grade. And then you, by the time you're, you're done with school, you're fluent in English. Um, but more of a, a British, uh, sort of English. Um, and, uh, and I, I think I always had this sort of fantasy. I was going to move to America and, and I emulated some of that, uh, and it's much to the dismay of my teachers who were very proper. And uh, wanted me to speak English. I actually got a, a, a remember I got a B in English because uh, I spoke uh, some words with a, an American accent, which they didn't care for. But everybody there speaks English, um, and uh, and uh, you know, so I grew up in Elsinore. Elsinore is a small town, fifty thousand people. Um, it's uh, it's sort of main claim to fame, I think, is uh, it's uh, it's the hometown of uh, of Shakespeare's Hamlet. So his castle is there and, uh, you know, they sort of everything has has some sort of name from 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 the play. Uh, every hotel has some, uh, you know, play on that. But um, it's uh, relatively close to Sweden. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, um, travel back and forth and look at a lot of Swedes. They can't drink in Sweden, really. So they come to Denmark and buy alcohol. Sweden has this sort of interesting law. Um, they used to have almost prohibition level sort of like, you know, laws where they, they, they have to go and buy it, buy alcohol in this one particular, uh, government controlled, much like Utah, uh, equated to Utah. And they still have to this day, you know, you can only buy alcohol in certain places, um, and certain bars you can't, you know, you can't buy alcohol, only light beer. My parents are divorced. Um, my father, when you were how old, when I was five. It's a very sad time. Um, but um, no, my father was an executive for many years at uh, IBM um, and uh, pretty much had his whole career uh, as, a, as a salesman, top salesman. I'm dad, I believe is what, uh, um, what he told me. Um, and uh, before that, he was a, um, uh, a captain. He was a sailor. He, uh, he had... Uh, sailed uh, large uh, ships and then he switched his career and he became sort of a 
a computer salesman before computers were really, you know, ubiquitous. Uh, my mother um, was a homemaker. And then when uh, they divorced, she, you know, she raised me uh, and my, I have four brothers, um, two of which um, are, uh, three of which are hers. <laughs> and then I have another brother on my dad's side. Um, and she raised us um, as a single mom for many years. And then she remarried. Um, and so how often do you see your dad? On my childhood, every two weeks, you know, give or take. Um, but I live with my mom mostly. How old were you when she remarried? I was probably in my sort of early teens. So that's tough because no one ever likes the person that your mom brings home or your dad brings home. Definitely not. I love him, but not once she brought him home. I remember that. I remember sort of... I think I found out and discovered just now the first time you actually didn't treat somebody like you wanted to be treated. <laughs> it's very possible. Yeah, no, I was definitely a, uh, not nice to him. And I, I sort of asked her when, when he was going to be out of here. And she's like, no, no, he's here to stay. And My I, kids ask me when I'm going to be out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, she, it, was, it, was, it was tough. I mean, it's tough to have... You know, I think I think when you're in it, you don't see it. But when you get some distance, you see it, uh, see it better, see it clearer. But I think, you know, just growing up with a single mom, you know, there wasn't a lot of, of frills, you know, um, that we had. You know, there was it, it was it was not a, a luxurious upbringing, but certainly not a, a terrible one. I mean, it's it still I still had everything I needed. I still went to school. I still had clothes. I still had food and and, uh, you know, my mom is a, is a lovely woman and, and, uh, there was a lot of love, but, you know, but it was hard, you know, it was times when, you know, she was just, you know, trying to make ends meet. And, and this is my dad was of course supportive and all that stuff, but we lived with my mom and, and that was the, that was the environment we grew up in. What happened that said, this is my way out the entertainment mm -hmm. business. It was, I remember it. It was, there was a summer when I was 14. And a very good friend of mine had gotten a satellite dish. And it sounds like such a, a lame thing, but I spent, we, he recorded movies off a English movie channel called Premiere. And he would just record every movie that came on. And I spent an entire summer, and I, I think I literally just saw no one just watching movies and watching TV and watching comedies, watching everything that I could. And that was right at the time when they also started doing behind the scenes, little documentaries, that kind of stuff. And that really sort of made me go, wow, this is something, this is, this is incredible. This, like, you can do this for a living. Um, and, and so I started making my own little sort of movies and, and, you know, I got someone had a super eight camera and I got some film and we went out and we shot a bunch of weird stuff and made, made some, you know, experimental movies and, uh, most of them didn't turn out very well, but, you know, but it was really fun to do. Um, and it just got me thinking and I, 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 I couldn't, I, it, it was a fire had been turned on in me that I could not stop thinking about. And as I grew up and I got older and I, 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 I went to, to college or a version of college that we have there that, um, I, it just kept nagging me. I have to do this. Um, and, and when it came time to really choose my major, um, I decided 
my major is, is I got to work in entertainment. That is what I am, I'm here for. Um, I, you know, I remember like thinking about it, oh, should I do some sort of business thing? And I was just like, I can't even imagine me doing that. You know, like it's going to be so boring. I want experiences. I like the idea that it's never been driven by money. It's never been driven by anything, money or fame or anything like that. It has everything to do with the experiences and the stories and the, and the, you know, the, and affecting people in a certain way. So that was always in the, in the back of my mind. So when, when, as I was growing up and, and I, I literally watched every movie, I could quote every movie. I could tell you who directed it. I could, you know, like I was encyclopedic at the time about every movie. And this is sort of the, 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 the eighties and nineties. Um, and, um, I, I just, I just loved it. And I wanted to be part of that community. So when I was 18, I had an opportunity to, um, go and live with a family here in Los Angeles, um, that someone else knew back home and they had introduced me and, and turns out it was a, it was a doctor, Richard Mailman, um, that, uh, you know, I've, I've sadly lost uh, touch with and as well as his family were all really lovely, but I stayed with him for about nine months. He was uh, a heart doctor and he needed someone to be with him and pick him up from work and take him to work. And other than that, I had really no responsibilities and I had a car and I was in Los Angeles and I had a few other friends who got a similar gig with, and we were just exploring the city. But you need money to explore the city. Yes. So I had the great thing about Denmark is that they give you money. If you're studying or, you know, you can take a sabbatical, they'll give you a little bit of money. It's not much, but it's like 700 bucks a month. So I had a little bit of money that was, was coming in. Um, and then about a year in, uh, nine months in, I went back and I decided, okay, I'm going to make a real break for it over there. I'm going to, I'm going to move to, to LA. I'm, I'm, I need to go home. I need to make some money. Um, and, uh, I got a job at a bar I was a bartender and I would put on these like crazy shows and, and uh, music nights. And, um, I was a big fan of the doors and we had all these great doors cover bands. We made all these like great, um, shows and I made just enough money to buy a ticket and to put, I think two, $2,000 in my back pocket. And then I left and I had no income. I had no, I actually knew very few people. I had met a girl here uh, and she had introduced me to uh, this guy, Eric, uh, who had an apartment in Santa Monica, which was an amazing apartment. Now, in, in retrospect, it was one of the greatest apartments I've ever had. The 16th floor uh, of, of a uh, place down in, in Santa Monica on the beach uh, with a view, two bedroom apartment rent control. Uh, for 900 bucks a month. So my share of it was $450. Oh my God. <laughs> it was incredible. Um, so I had a, a really great sort and you of had like, your own room. I had my own room. I had no mattress. But overlooking the ocean. But overlooking the ocean. No so mattress. No mattress. So I got here and I, I had four grand. So I knew I had exactly two months to find a job. You know, where do you figure two months? What are you talking about? Well, two months, two months rent. And then I got to, I got to eat. And I got to buy a mattress. <laughs> 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 you 
So, so for the longest time, I slept on his pillows from one of the couches that I then had to replace every morning um, on the floor. And, and I went out and I decided, okay, well, I will do whatever it takes to make it. But first, I got to get just a base. I got to get a job so that I can stay here beyond these two months. And you don't have a visa. I did not have a visa. So I was, you got uh, six months to get something, right? Six months. Also, I had no work permit. Um, and uh, and that's not an easy thing. And when those cost $7,000 to get. $7,000 takes years. And you're most likely going to get, get rejected because I had no special skills at the time. I say the key is get the mattress and marry the girl. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the easy way to do it. But, you know, that was not how it worked out. So I, I spent I spent two months and I got a job and my first job in L.A. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say I was a busboy at the Brentwood Bar and Grill. It does not exist anymore. I think it's a cheesecake factory now. Um, but back then, that was a place where people came. It was a place, place where people came, but no one saw me because I was literally. Well, first of all, I, was, I, I don't think I was the, the only white busboy. And the other busboys were very, uh, you know, uh, dubious about this, this, this gringo that was, that was there bussing tables uh, alongside them. Uh, and I didn't last long. Uh, it, was, it was too fancy. I had no idea how to deal with a fancy restaurant, all the fancy clients and all that stuff and pouring from the right side. I, so I don't think I was very good. So you're boy. fired for the first time in your life. <laughs> I, was, I was not fired, but um, I, I, shortly, uh, I left shortly thereafter and I... I started getting sort of a series of jobs just in, in restaurants as I simultaneously was out there looking for people that were doing stuff. In the, I mean, I literally was, I would have done anything. And um, my first thing that I ever did was a, um, a music video. I can't remember the band now, but some friends of mine who were doing a bunch of production um, had gotten this, 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 uh, music video together and, uh, they needed help. And I was essentially a glorified PA, but I got a, an associate producer credit. Um, that was your first, that credit. was my first, very, very and first And for those gig. of you who don't know, that's the, uh, lowest producer credit you can get. And so that's where you started. <laughs> it's a token producer. I was, I was definitely a token producer, but I think they liked me and, uh, and I was always helpful and sort of you know, getting things done. And, and I think that's, that was my first foray. And then, you know, I continued sort of this path of working in, in, in the, um, in a restaurant while on the side, uh, I also started working for a video distributor called Xenon Entertainment, specializing in, um, urban, uh, 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 Distribute uh, urban videos like uh, and black exploitation movies like Dolomite and uh, you know um, for those of you who don't know Dolomite he's probably one of the most popular black comedians from the seventies Rudy Ray Moore and it's interesting you got a pattern here you're working as a gringo in the busboy situation you're the you're a minority there and now you're a minority in this situation well sort of except this was one of those you know um, funny situations where there were probably no black people actually working at Xenon Entertainment. Um, and, uh, but that, that was really their niche. Uh, I remember it was, it was a, it was an odd place cause the owner of the place, uh, so I, there was only maybe 15 people that worked there and, uh, he never remembered my name. Uh, he always just called me guy. Uh, 
So, <laughs> hey, guy. <laughs> and I always I always thought that was so funny because, I, you know, I worked there for, you know, on and off for over two years. But what they started doing and what they started seeing was that there was an opportunity in uh, documentaries about, um, you know, black history. And they had, they had done a few things and they were they were selling well. And they uh, asked me and this uh, other uh, guy named Steve, hey, could you guys come up with some ideas? And I was like, sure, for sure. And so we started doing some research and we're like, why don't we do a documentary on the Black Panther Party? We just thought, thought that would be the, you know, the, the greatest thing ever. So we started doing some research and, and started doing some, some, some uh, outreach and, um, and started putting this project together for them. And it was, it was an exciting time too, but, it, but the project sort of never, never went, uh, uh, never got completed because I think they had some issues financially and blah, 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 you know, classic Hollywood. But, but it was exciting to get the first taste of putting it together and calling people and, and calling Eldridge Cleaver from the Black Panther Party and trying to find Huey P. Newton's family. And, you know, like all these these figures that were a central part of of American history, you know, um, uh, or these black history uh, and, and starting getting, a, you know, putting a project together. And it really sort of made me think producing is the way for me, because at the time, I, I think I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to direct. I certainly didn't want to act or anything like that, but I, I knew I wanted to be either behind a camera in some capacity, and I either wanted to direct or, or produce. But I started realizing I was good at talking to people, and I was good at talking people into doing stuff. Uh, and I was persistent enough um, that, that they would listen to me for some reason. Um, so... So that was sort of like my foray. And then I started meeting more people and I got into editing, taught me how to edit, taught myself how to edit really on, on, and that was really my way in through post-production. Post I actually really started out more as an editor than a, than a producer. So what's the next step after that? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> it's kind of a, a wacky story. I, Got connected with these two guys, um, Martin Kunert and Eric Manis. Um, they're two writers, um, done a bunch of stuff and um, really talented guys. And they were dabbling in independent movies. Eric had just produced a, 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 a movie and, and they needed an assistant editor. And I was like willing to work for free. I, I'd do anything to just get my foot in the door. And, you know, so I helped them out a little bit on the movie and, and then um, they had a, a documentary project came in called um, Rhyme or Reason, which was a, 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 a hip hop documentary. One of the first ones, really great one, uh, directed by Peter Spirer, uh, who had been was an Oscar nominated uh, director and 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 he had put this thing together. And I remember they had shot everything um, on film, uh, but with no slates. And my job was to sync up the entire movie to audio reels that no one had any idea, uh, you know, what order in which they were in. So I had to listen to them and look at the screen and find the moment where I could sync up the, the audio tape. It was a disaster, but we got it sunk up and we got it to, to work. And, and so I started working with them. They sold a movie to Arnold Copelson, I think, uh, at the time. And it was a big sort of blockbuster movie called The Hindenburg. Uh, and uh, they got paid a tremendous amount of money for it. 
And they turn around, they had this little post-production company that they had been, been running on the side. And they said, hey, do you want to take over? And I said, I was 23. I said, sure, I got, what, what do I have to lose? So I, I ended up with um, this post-production company. We were housed out of, uh, on, down on the Miracle Mile and on, on Wilshire. Had uh, a few edit bays and uh, sound mixing and graphics and that kind of stuff. And, and then really got into music videos uh, and a little bit of independent, independent film. Uh, a good friend of mine um, uh, started the N uh, LA Independent Film Festival, which is now the Los Angeles Film Festival. Um, and their offices were housed out of my office because uh, I had a couple extra offices in, my, in, in the place I was in. So I started getting into to that sort of world and started meeting people and 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 working with them and it was just uh, it was a really exciting time and a and a and a big learning experience. Also, just running your own company at twenty three, when I was clueless, I had no idea, uh, and and the company ended up going going belly up uh, once the sort of the digital revolution and post production you know came in. Uh, and, uh, I lost a tremendous amount of money. Um, but, um, but at the same time, it was also the best education in the shortest amount of time that I could get, even though it was, it was very costly. Uh, but, but it was, but it taught me so many things that now are, are so embedded in me. Uh, and especially around sort of failing, like it's okay. You know, like there's life. There's life beyond, like, if you're not going to take some swings and, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to have, uh, you know, a lot of great opportunities. You got to, you got to put yourself out there. Um, and I met so many people through that process that that kind of led to the next sort of stage of my career. Awesome. All right. So um, what was the next thing that happened after that? It definitely hurt, you know, going through that period of time. But you took the risk. But you took the risk. And I don't regret it in the slightest. It was... As, as, as hard as it was, it was also one of the greatest moments or a time, the greatest time in, 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 in my early life uh, where um, I just put it out there. And, and I was like, what do I have to, uh, what do I have to lose? It was an amazing time in the sense that I took a risk. I had nothing to lose. And I, I guess that's sort of been, especially in my early career, I have nothing to lose. What, I have everything to gain. The worst thing you can get is a no or something doesn't go your way. Well, you know, you just get back up and you keep going. But you did lose all that money. I did lose all that money. It was not an insignificant Thank God you were in that Santa Monica rent control department. Hell yeah. <laughs> but that took a while. It took a while, you know, and I took a year where I licked my wounds and tried to figure out like what's next. And I was... Uh, at that point, so given an opportunity to um, be a post supervisor uh, on a uh, on for a company called um, Zulu Mayfield Productions, and uh, they specialized in documentaries and behind the scenes stuff, and they were sort of just getting into kind of reality television, um, and so I worked for them, and eventually sort of became their head of post-production and ran and post-produced uh, all their shows. Um, and um, and it was, uh, it was a, a really interesting time, sort of just kind of working now for real in television. Um, and that was really my foray into television through post-production. 
and then um, the same two fellows that I that I took over the company from Martin and, and Eric uh, created a show um, for MTV called MTV's Fear. Um, Fear was sort of at the very beginning of, of reality TV, a, a really cool concept, still is. It was really a fun thing. You take five kids, you put them on a haunted location, and their objective is to stay there for three nights. That's it. And if they do, they get five grand each. Uh, and if they leave, they get nothing. Uh, and, and we really shot, we, it was very innovative in the way it was shot because there was no camera crews around. It was all shot by you know, with, with, you know, like Blair Witch style. And so that was a really fun sort of, uh, it was a fun project. Now I, I, I was a, a segment producer on the pilot and helped uh, develop the pilot and, and the series, and then uh, became a, a coordinating producer uh, on the series and, and essentially produced f complete episodes. Um, and meanwhile, you know, while this is all going on now, we're probably five years in and I'm still an illegal alien in this fine country. Will you explain how you run your own company legally as an illegal alien? <laughs> well, it's not illegal to run a company. It's illegal to make money uh, off the company. <laughs> uh, but I always, Is it illegal to lose money? It, it, it's not illegal to lose money. <laughs> it's as long as you pay your taxes, which I did, um, you know, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be fine in, in the eyes of the law. And I was lucky that I, right around that time, um, uh, that I was producing fear won the green card lottery and the green card lottery for those who are not familiar is a yearly lottery that ha actually happens, uh, where the government puts out 50,000 green cards, uh, to eligible countries, Denmark being one of them. And, uh, and I believe simply by lottery, they pick out people to receive the, their green card. And, um, I had, I had, you know, was still getting out from this mountain of debt that I had gotten myself into. And I remember going through my bills one night, it was a very fateful night. This was actually, this is a moment for me that changed everything. I had, I had gone back to Denmark for three weeks to see my family. Um, you know, to, to sort of recuperate after sort of a year of misery. And, uh, I was not in a great place and my family were like, well, all right, well, now's the time for you to come home. And maybe it wasn't spoken ex exactly like that, but there was a moment where, and I just didn't want to, I did not want that part of the dream to go away forever. And I remember coming back and I, I came back to a stack of bills this high. And it's about a foot for the people who can't see it. And I was going through it. I was opening it up and it was, you know, bill for this, bill for that. And I, I just remember going like, all right, in the, in the trash, because <laughs> I can't pay it right now. I'll deal with it next month, which I eventually did. But Visa bill, American Express bill, Visa, Visa, MasterCard, you know, in the trash. And I remember at the end of this going, wait a second, there was that envelope. And I, you know, I don't know why this happened to me because it's never happened to me ever since, but it was oddly shaped. So I went through the trash and I picked out the envelope and it said National Visa Processing Center. And it was in the trash and I opened it up and I remember going, this can't be. 
And there it was. My, I, I had won the, my, the notice uh, that I had won the green card lottery. And it was literally one of the darkest moments and it turned. Um, but this is where sort of the second part of the story sort of comes in. Incredible. Which, which, which is I was broke. <laughs> and to get the green card, you have to pay a fine because you've been here legally and the fine and a lawyer and combined that was about $2,000 and I had no money. I was, I was literally flat broke and I decided, I was like, oh, well, I got to find a way to do this. So I contacted the lawyer and he's like, all right, well, let me know when you have the money. <laughs> and so I took a job and I, I scrounged up the money. I remember I was working for lightning doves. It's a famous place where when there was videotape, you get massive amounts of uh, duplications of whatever you wanted. And it was, it was owned by um, uh, this guy, Matt, who um, uh, also had helped me a little bit in my post-production company. And so he took pity on me, I think, and gave me a job. And I worked my ass off to scrounge up this money. It's one of the worst jobs I've ever had in my life. <laughs> but it was necessary. And I got just enough money to get this process started and I got a date for my interview. And the date was almost a year after I had received my notice. And I go to my, my, my interview and I sit down with the INS officer at the time. Um, and, um, and he interviews me and asks me, you know, the, the usual questions. And, and then at the end he goes, well, I mean, I, I think as far as I'm concerned, you are approved uh, to receive your green card, but... I don't know if there's any more left. And I said, oh my God. what do you mean? And he goes, well, we give out 50,000, but we select 100,000 people because there's so many people that don't fulfill the criteria. So I don't know if there's any left, but I'm going to, I'll know on Wednesday. And this was Friday. So this was the longest, you know, five days of my life as I'm waiting at home, just hoping that this thing comes through so that I can finally work like a normal human being in this country. And I remember going down there and seeing the guy, the, my officer that, you know, and I, I, we make eye contact and he gives me nothing. And I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I am just toast. And then I get into his office and he asked me for my passport. And I'm like, ah, oh, boy, here we go. I'm going to get deported. And he, he takes it and he stamps it and he hands it back to me and he says, welcome to the United States. And I was like, I, 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 I'm speechless. And, and at that point, everything changed. It was really sort of like that, you know, everything changed in my life. I had, I had sort of made my, my big mistakes already um, and, and now I could really start fresh. And, um, and then I started um, really focused on producing uh, and show running. And, and that's ultimately sort of where my career kind of headed at that point. So tell us how you got the Stone Stanley. <laughs> well, my good friend, Sharon Levy. Sharon Levy is now the president of Spike TV and an amazing woman who has worked in the trenches for probably 25 years or more to get where she is. And she's really a special, special person. She really is. She is one of my dearest friends. I love her very much. But I think she, I, I came in, she was a development executive at Stone Stanley. And I came in to, to interview with her and with, uh, I think, and, uh, 
and a couple of the producers, uh, Travis Draft and Mark, oh, I can't remember Mark, but uh, Mark's last name. Uh, sorry, Mark. Uh, but um, they were doing a show called Animal Pranksters for TLC, I think it was, or, or Animal Planet. And it was like a hidden camera show and, and they needed a segment producer and, you know, and Sharon interviewed me and we had a great time and uh, working together. And, you know, she's, she's the best kind of tough cookie, you know, she's direct, she's straight and she is, uh, you know, immensely uh, lovely and loyal uh, and, and one of my closest friends. Um, and she, um, she, I think saw something in me perhaps that I didn't even see, um, and she liked me and so she kept me around and some more pilots that we did together. And, uh, eventually the Joe Schmo show came up and she, um, myself and my producing partner at the time, Anthony Ross, uh, approached us and said, Hey, are you guys interested in, in, in doing this, uh, with these two guys, Brett and, and Paul, uh, who created the show? And, um, and of course we were like, this is either the greatest thing ever, or it's the biggest disaster ever, but we couldn't say no to that one. That was just too interesting to us to, uh, to, to not do. And, uh, so we dove into that with everything we had and I killed myself, you know, trying to harness this beast because we had no money and no time to do it. Um, but we got a, an amazing cast together that included Kristen Wiig and Lance Kroll and Brian Keith Etheridge. Um, uh, a lot of great you know, comedy talent. Um, and this one lovely human being called Matt Kennedy Gould, who was our Joe Schmo. Um, and we sort of made the show in, we shot it in 10 days and, um, it started airing. We, we edited it, uh, Anthony and I, and, and our friend, John Moore. And you started your career breaking talent. Yeah. It was an incredible time. And I, I certainly can't take full credit for everything because, you know, Paul and Rhett were, were definitely, you know, the, the, the creative driving force on, 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 on a lot of it. Um, but it was, it was a special project. It was one of those where most of the time production is pretty harrowing. It's pretty miserable. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's way more glamorous, I think, in the tabloids than it is in real life. And, uh, but this production was special. Everybody really got along well. Everybody had the same goal. We started seeing the, the show unfold and knew we had something special. I remember seeing the cue card lady who's on a, you know, eight hour day. And when, when that day is up, she's gone. She stuck around just watching the line cut unfold uh, and what was happening. And, I, I, and, and they would stick around and just to see what happened next. And so it was a really special thing. And we, we found the show and really, you know, breathed life to it in the edit bay and spent a lot of time putting the show together. And then it started airing. And then Anthony and I went on to do another project actually for Comedy Central. And, um, and for whatever reason, we didn't pay attention because we were so entrenched in this new project. We didn't even know, like, I didn't know what ratings meant or what a good rating was. But when we started hearing, like we started getting news clippings and people were talking about this show. And I, I don't know if anybody still remembers the show, but at the time it was a really, you know, special show because it was, it was a parody of a reality show. Um, and, um, and unfortunately today, when you see some of the stuff that we cut and 
you know, now real reality shows look exactly the same and, and, but without, without, without irony. <laughs> Joe Schmo was sort of like, for those of you remember, it was like what Dick Dietrich's nightstand was for the Jerry Springer kind of shows. It was for reality shows. Pretty amazing. And so at what point do you say to yourself, okay, you, you come back, you have all the bills, you have these rent control department you get your first gig really producing a major television show. At what point do you say to yourself with all the bills and all the craziness, I'm never going to do anything again. I've got it. I'm never looking back. The bills are starting to get paid and I am on my way. Was it then? No, it was, it was the day I received my, the stamp in my passport. It was a turning point for everything. I mean, I can, you can almost like look at the calendar and go like everything from then on has been, cause I, I had, I was now prepared. I now had everything I needed. I had my permission to be here for real. Cause that weighs on you as you're sort of going about your life. Um, you know, that you're always sort of feel like you're hiding, uh, in a way and, and, or, or you can't do, you know, you can't take jobs that, that other people can or that are, that are offered to you. I mean, I remember I had an opportunity to be a, uh, early on as a production assistant on a, on a scripted CBS show, late night show, show, I think it was Silk Stockings or one of those shows. And I couldn't take it. I realized after working for a couple of weeks and they wanted to hire me, I, I couldn't do it because they didn't have the paperwork necessary to do so. So I missed out on some of those opportunities. So it weighs on you and you find ways around it. But but at the, at the same time, what, once that happened, that was a real sort of turning point. I was like, okay, now it's full speed ahead. What's the next segue in your career? Well, that's when we got an agent. This guy, Max Doublefield, from uh, at the time he was at Don Bockwald, an associate, um, materializes uh, and starts talking to us about representation. And, and just to back up, we had, again, we had no idea how successful this show was until we started getting all this attention. We had no idea. It was, it's, it was delightful in its naivete. It was just sort of like we, we had just made something that we thought was funny and it worked. It was original and it was unique and there was nothing like it on the air. It's an anomaly in the sense that it's one of the few shows that came out like a rocket. Everybody loved it, but then it stopped getting the ratings and then it just went away like really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I, it's one of the few shows I can ever think of that that happened yeah. to. Do you have any understanding why that happened? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, season two didn't perform particularly well. Um, well why? Well, I have yeah, a few things. I think one of the things that comes with success is everybody, especially a successful show, uh, everybody suddenly thinks that they were the ones responsible for its success. Um, and I, I, we were all in this position with the, with the network, which was Spike, um, where the network executive overseeing the show had a very specific vision for what the show is and what made it work. And they sent us down some, some rabbit holes that probably was not good for the show. So I'm not blaming it all on the network necessarily, but you know there was some other sort of strife internally as to who contributed what and 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 that kind of stuff. So 
this is a very sort of typical thing that that happens in in sort of that that next iteration where suddenly everybody wants to be the star of the show uh, behind the scenes. And I think it, it came down to was a, you know came down to some fundamental mistakes we made. Number one, we booked the wrong schmoes. When you look at the original Joe Schmo, the, the, the guy was so lovable. All you wanted to do was hang out with him, you know? And, and, and even though he, we put him in all these positions, the jokes wasn't necessarily on him. He was just there to provide the reaction and the sort of maybe sanity in this insane world that we had created around him. And then the second one, the, the, the network became insistent that the, um, the joke, we had to get someone really smart. And, and we ended up with this great girl. She was a CIA analyst who worked for Madeleine Albright. So a smart cookie. But we're like, no, no, you don't, you misunderstand. This is all about finding someone that we all love. Someone we can relate to that's that, you know, not that she wasn't relatable, but it was just, so that was a number one. We also had a, a, a guy and we decided to do a, and this is probably the fatal flaw of the show. We decided to do a parody of the bachelor or any other sort of dating show. And we had miscalculated one very key thing, which is if we play our cards, right? Well, maybe they, we hadn't, we hadn't even considered that perhaps they would like the people that they were dating. And when it was sort of all revealed to them, I mean, it was the worst reveal. It was a lead balloon because they felt so betrayed and they put themselves out there emotionally. And all of a sudden they find that it's all a ruse. And that's where we learned, unfortunately, a, a very hard lesson that you can't do that to people. That's not a good, that's not a good way to end a show. You want to end with an up, not a downer of someone going like, you betrayed me. That's a terrible, terrible way. And I think that sort of came through. It was a, it was a hard show to figure out. Um, and, and it was a valuable lesson. Unfortunately, you know, it, it, it played out on a much larger canvas than you'd really want. So take us through, if you can, without giving up any confidential details of how you got the gig at Comedy Central. What mm -hmm. happened? You go through the process. Are you feeling in the interview process that I got this? Or are you feeling like there's a lot of competition here and I don't know what's going on? I was actually at my friend Sharon Levy's 40th birthday. And we were yeah, away. Uh, we were in Sonoma. And uh, it was all her friends and, you know, friends that I've I was friendly with as well, uh, including uh, my predecessor, uh, Elizabeth. And um, we spent a lot of time together, all of us. And um, and I remember sort of, you know, connecting um, greatly with Elizabeth. She was, she was a really, as you as you mentioned, an, an unbelievable human being, a personality unmatched um, and, and really, truly someone that that's just magnetic in her in her, you know, way of being. And, and I, you know, we really connected in a, in a, in a, in a, in a great way and had a great rapport and she's really smart and, um, she's very warm, which is, you know, something that's always attractive in a human being, I think. And, um, and I remember sort of the week after we got back, um, 
I was driving down Sunset Boulevard and I was about to meet with Michael Camacho. From, Michael uh, Camacho is a tremendous reality agent. He's been through a lot and uh, he still <laughs> keeps on ticking. Anyway, he, um, uh, I, was, I was going to meet with him. He was promising me, you know, uh, you know wealth and fame and fortune uh, at a breakfast at the Peninsula. And on while, my way, while you were being represented by Stubblefield from, uh, well, he had now moved to UTA and, and Camacho was at UTA. Oh, got it. Okay. It's a long story with the, on the agency side, but, um, but anyway, so, um, uh, on my way there, I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard, much like coming here. Uh, I got a phone call from Elizabeth Porter and, uh, she, uh, she's like, Hey, have you ever, uh, thought about coming to the dark side? and i said no i haven't really ever really thought about that ever because it hasn't really sort of like i i don't know if if that's really a place for me um she's like well think about it and you should come in and we should sit down and have a conversation about it at comedy central and i said all right and and to be honest with you i sort of dismissed it i i wasn't really that interested uh at the time in the job um and um, although after that breakfast that I was going to <laughs> is where I sort of had become so disillusioned with the world in which I was, was making my living uh, and the people surrounding it, that I got home that night and I remember calling a friend of mine. I was like, you know, this is, other, you know, we were talking about some various shows that I was going to do and. And then I was like, there's this other thing. And, and I remember he said, like, what are you, are you insane? Why don't you go meet? And then it dawned on me. I was like, of course I have to go meet. So I sat down with Elizabeth. She told me a little bit about what she was looking for and all that good stuff. And it sounded like an interesting opportunity. And I've, whenever I'm presented with an interesting opportunity, something, sometimes it's a U-turn. I like taking it because it keeps it, it keeps it interesting. I keep learning. I keep growing as a producer and as a human being. And I, and I, and and I thought like, as I was leaving, I was like, Hmm, this could be kind of interesting. It's not exactly what I wanted to do, but maybe it is. What's the worst thing that can happen? I take a year off, I go do this thing, try it out. And if it works, it works. And if it's not, Listen, I've got a career elsewhere and I'll just continue that. So, um, so I, 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 I jumped at it and we figured it out. And, and I think there were a couple other people that were sort of in contention, but, um, but, um, you know, Elizabeth and I had a, a, a really great rapport and, and so, um, so I jumped into it and I started about, I don't know, three months later or something like that. And what was your role at the time that you started? I was a vice president of specials. And I think the idea at the time was for me to really sort of focus in on, it was never really clearly defined, but I think the idea was that I was going to take on uh, and oversee the, the production of the stand-up specials in particular, and maybe some of the other event programming, while Elizabeth would focus on some of the you know, bigger uh, projects that were coming through. The transition when the person that hired you left, that must have been so stressful on you. Nothing happens all of a sudden, and you probably had a back seat to looking and seeing how everything was working and how everything was going, and maybe had a 
an idea of what was to come. But it's a brutal thing when you have a great relationship with somebody and then the decision is made where they're not there anymore and somebody's like, hey, guess what? You're going to take over that office. How did you handle that? Well, it wasn't exactly how it went down. Once uh, Elizabeth left, the the job was left vacant. And um, I had about, I think, three months left on my contract. And I... I said to Kent, I said, you know, who I'd sort of gotten to know better during this whole, you know, time I was there, I threw my hat in the ring uh, for the job. And he said, all right, you know, I appreciate that. I don't think he was really seriously considering me uh, at the time. And, and he said, well, I'm going to go and look uh, elsewhere, but, you know, I'll definitely take this into consideration. Was it a thing where you were going back and forth like, oh, do I talk to her and say, this is something I think I'd like to go for? Or do you just not mention it? I, under the circumstances, it probably wasn't appropriate for me to to really sort of, you know, go that route. And it was very clear that, you know, the show must go on to some degree, you know, not in a Machiavellian way, but in, in much, you know, this thing has to continue and there's, there's an opportunity. But I, you know, at the same time as they came to me and wanted to renew my contract, uh, I turned them down. I said, I'm not interested. The power of no. What's really also interesting is that sometimes you're at a company and even when you're doing well, it's like when you're growing up with your family, your mom doesn't really talk that highly about you in front of your other family. But then when you leave, she's telling everybody, oh, I'm so proud of my son. What a... And so when you're inside of a company, Kent is presumably interviewing other people that aren't in the company and sitting down and spending an hour with them and listening to what they have to say. But it's not like he feels like he has to sit down with Jonas and have an interview with him for the job because he knows him as he knows him. So that's an interesting dilemma. It was it was an interesting time and I had no idea if, if it was going to work out, but I was also OK with it. I took an enormous pick. I was making a lot of money as a producer. I, I, I didn't do it for the money. I've never done anything solely because of money. No one you know, uh, everybody, you know, likes a nice paycheck, but, but that can't, it's not my motivator. It's my motivator is to do something that fulfills me as a, as a, as a, as a, you know, creative person. And so I think when, when I, when I looked at this, I was like, well, I mean, uh, I don't want to sign on and I have no idea if I'm, I'm going to get the job. And if I'm not going to get the job, then who's my new boss going to be? What if I don't like him? I wanted to have the option to leave if I wanted to. Um, it wasn't, you know, I was, I was so new to the company that I was like, well, I, I you know, I don't, I, I didn't have a defined role yet. So I decided to say, no, thanks. And I was very honest with them. I told them ex exactly these reasons. Um, and I think, you know, Kent sort of was like, do you not want to work here anymore? I said, no, no, I would love to work here, but I, 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 and I explained to him exactly what I, what I just laid out. And, and I think that sort of got everybody thinking like, all right, well, maybe, you know, is there a role for him here? And then, you know, and Kent and I didn't know each other super well at that time. Um, but what happened and the sort of the fateful thing that did happen was Charlie Sheen kind of came knocking and, um, and uh, was potentially interested in doing a roast. And I think there was a lot of hesitancy about, doing that roast because of where he was in his life. And 
I just couldn't believe that we would turn this thing down. I knew it was going to be the biggest thing we'd ever done. At the same time, I also don't think we can enable someone who is going through a breakdown and 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 um, and obviously uh, some some drug addiction. Um, so we couldn't put in ourselves in a position of sort of you know doing that just for the sake of ratings. Um, so what I said to Kent was like, you know, I think our our president at the time was not particularly thrilled about this idea. And I said to Kent, like, how can we not at least sit down and have a meeting with, with Charlie and just see for ourselves, like, you know, like so to have a conversation with him and see if he's really out of his mind, you know, before we, you know, before we say no, because this could be the, the biggest thing we've ever done. So Kent agreed. And so I set a meeting and, and we drove to Charlie's house and with Mark Berg there? With Mark Berg. Actually, we drove to Mark's house and, and Charlie came over. He lived a few houses down. Mark Berg is his manager, also the producer of the Saw series. Great guy. And longtime manager of, of, of Charlie's. Um, and we met at his house. He had a, uh, some food ready for us. And, and we sat down. We talked a little bit about the roast. And then Charlie showed up about 20 minutes later. And, you know, he walked in. And I remember going like, oh, boy, he does not look good. He looked a little bit like, you know, the, the crib keeper. Uh, but he sat down and I was floored by how articulate and um, present he was and understanding of where he was right now in his life. And now with the, you know, recent context of the HIV thing, I realized what prompted all this stuff. But at the time, no one had any idea what, what was going on. And, but sitting at that table, talking to him as this thing was blowing up around the world um, and realizing that he is, for all his flaws, a pretty unique and special human being who was very much there and very much aware of what was going on. Um, and I think Kent and I both left, left convinced that if he could go, if he could clean up, and that was part of the condition for doing the roast, and which he did, um, and already was in the process of, um, then we would do it. And um, and it sort of, you know, we, we, we did the roast and it became the highest rated show we've ever done at Comedy Central. And that was right before your contract was up. Correct. Not, not a bad time to have that kind of a, a success. And so, um, so I remember, <laughs> I remember like right after the ratings came in, I remember going like, I asking Kent like, Hey, is there any sort of news, you, you know, about the job, you know, you're going to go with someone else. And I remember him going like, ah, it's yours. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I remember did a little skip down the hall and, uh, and you know, and here we are. That's fantastic. That speaks to Kent as well, because when you come into a job, there's people who are there who've been there a long time. They're used to a certain system. There's people who are there a short period of time. And there's people that you want to bring in. You want to bring in some of the people that you've had relationships with. And a lot of people clean house completely. And it doesn't appear like that was ever his style. He really, really embraces the people that are there. He has the same values. I mean, I think that's part of why we get along. He has, he shares these values. Like he is, he's a guy who's, 
who's incredibly honest about things. He's very straight. You, you know, you, you always know where you stand with him. Um, he's very smart. He listens better than anybody. It's kind of scary at times. Um, but, you know, he pays attention to details that you're like, oh, shit, did I say that or did I not say that? But but he is someone that really, you know, values people and loyalty. And he is loyal and and he's very he takes great care of people. And and I think that's sort of like so we have a lot of shared, you know, values and 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 also sensibilities. I think, you know, he's he's um, he's really great. He's great to work with. I mean, he really is. It's been I mean, real. And that's another turning point in my career. I think I'd sort of come to a place where. I really believe that if you are going to be a really good and effective executive at a network, you should have some basic knowledge of how this stuff is made. And ideally, you should have made it yourself so that you can speak from a place of actually knowing as opposed to giving notes on stuff where you're giving notes that people are going to roll their eyes at. That's why network executives get a bad, bad rap. And by the way, not all of them are are not good, but they are they they are some of them. Some are inexperienced when it comes to actual production. They may know how the network runs, but they don't know how to, the television component actually you know gets made in the trenches. And I think that's why someone like Sharon Levy, who has been in the trenches, and I've been in the trenches with her, um, you sort of you get a certain respect for that and you understand this is how it's made this is how these things cut together you know if you don't know that it's really hard to give notes on something if you if you have no idea how it's really made all right six degrees of separation i'm going to mention a name and i want you to say whatever comes to mind it could be one word could be a sentence could be a story the late joan rivers Amazing. You know, she was, I, I never had a lot of personal interaction with her, but I did, uh, just before she died, uh, we were talking to her a little bit, um, about doing a 24 hour stunt where she was going to read, um, jokes, as many jokes as she could in 24 hours, nonstop. Um, out of her joke um, catalog, which is a this, which is now has been donated to the Smithsonian, but it's a, a basically like a wooden um, like um, um, uh, cupboard that you'd find in a library with all her jokes alphabetized according to topic. And we were going to do that as a as a stunt, and it just spoke so much to first of all. She understood the power of the internet. She was really interested in kind of figuring that out. And the fact that she was willing to go 24 hours and just do anything, um, she was amazing. She was just amazing. Cat Williams. <laughs> um, a genius, a troubled genius. Roseanne Barr. <laughs> um, I will remember Roseanne uh, fondly for the rest of my life. She, we did the Roseanne roast with her, and uh, I'll never forget the, the, you know, the, the time that we spent together trying to put this thing together. Uh, I think she'll admit she's not an easy person to please. Uh, and um, there were many times when she would... Um, 
she would, uh, you know, uh, challenge us with some of the ideas that we threw at her. Um, but none more than when we wanted her to book, uh, uh, or we wanted to bring Tom Arnold on the roast and that whole negotiation, uh, it felt like Kent and I were literally in the middle of, of <laughs> a divorce proceeding, uh, sitting on one couch with Tom on the phone and, and another with, with, with Roseanne negotiating the terms of their reunion on stage was, was one of the highlights of that. It was a pretty special uh, insight into their relationship and um, both the, the love, I think, there still is there between them and obviously the animosity that also exists to great extent. There might have been for the first time a little cross-section of five-minute editing rights on that one, maybe, <laughs> but we won't talk about that. <laughs> there was none. I promise <laughs> you, there was none. Aziz Ansari. Uh, he is... I mean, you know, he obviously did the roast of, of James Franco and, and so smart, so funny. Um, just seeing where he has gone with his Netflix show, it's such a good show. He's so talented. That guy is just a superstar and I, you know, dying to work with him in any which way we can. Will Ferrell. <laughs> well, I'm, I met Will at the, at the Bieber roast. He did, uh, uh, Anchorman or, or, um, uh, Ron Burgundy, uh, and came on as Ron Burgundy. And I mean, you know, he's just a comic genius and the most lovable guy that you, you will ever meet. Dr. Dre. <laughs> I don't know Dr. Dre, but um, my, uh, I, was, I did ride in an elevator with him once, and uh, my uh, three-year-old stepped on his white sneakers, and he was not happy about it. So that's my <laughs> only Dr. Dre story. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. Christopher Walken. <laughs> um, the Deer Hunter. I just remember him, you know, like that was when I had my, 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 my summer of movies, uh, that was one of my favorite movies that I watched. I love that. And, and the turn that he makes in that movie was spectacular. And that's, that's my, that's my Christopher Walken. And, and then of course, everybody does a good Christopher Walken, except for me. Kristen Wiig. Amazing. You know, I, I, I was blessed to have been part of the very first television show she ever did, which was the Joe Schmo show. And seeing her, she was only supposed to have been on four episodes, but she was so brilliant. Uh, she played Dr. Pat, which was his over the top psychologist who was a contestant on the show. And I remember she was doing a puppet show that turns very inappropriate with these therapy puppets. <laughs> and it was genius. While some would have just taken it to obvious places, just went to a place where it was so funny, but yet understated. And she was, we, we kept her on for as long as we could. I think she was on eight episodes out of the 10 um, because of that. That was really just amazing to see. Seth MacFarlane. I mean, one of the greatest hosts we've ever had, or roast masters we've ever had on the on the roast. Uh, talented guy, um, incredibly, you know, um, um, uh, gracious and and uh, and collaborative fellow. You know, like he's he's he is uh, he's a class act. Jeffrey Ross. 
one of my favorite, favorite human beings. Um, he, we're obviously doing a ton of stuff. All the roast, roast battle, which we're just about to launch at the end of this month in Montreal. Hope you'll come. I will. Um, it's very exciting. Um, and, uh, but Jeff is, is just, he's a mensch, right? He is just, he is so sweet. And you, you think that like, oh, maybe, maybe there's some, some darkness. I'm sure there is, but he is so giving and good to people in the, in the community and to people he meets. He's just the best human being. I can't say anything, you know, more about him. He's just, I love him. Agree a thousand percent. Kevin Hart. An enigma, not an enigma. He is a, a ball of energy. He is a, um, you know, when you deal with a superstar, it's very easy for them to be, you know, arm's length. They're usually protected by layers of representatives and assistants and entourage and all that stuff. But Kevin is one of those that's never forgotten where he came from. And it's so awesome to see that you don't have to be an asshole because you're a superstar. He's really a great, great, great guy. And, and, and obviously a, a, a great sort of guy that we've worked with a lot on the Bieber Rose. We we're doing a, a new series with him called Heart of the City, which is a stand-up series. Um, but he's, he's just a, a great collaborator and passionate. Like he's, he really cares. Like a lot of times you'll find big stars, you know, will do a project, but they'll put their name on it, but they will never be involved. He's in there. He's making it. And I have tremendous respect for that. Amy Schumer. I mean, she's one of the, the greatest uh, roast stories. She is, she is one of the most talented comics um, of our time. She is, you haven't seen anything yet. She is the one, one of the most driven, um, funny uh, comics out there. Um, she is, she is going to, she's going to be, she's a superstar. I don't know what's after superstar, but she'll go there. Adam Devine. Adam is a, is a, is again, another one of those that is just so awesome as a human being. He is, he is great to work with. He's very, you know, Adam Devine's house party, which is where I've spent most of my time working with Adam has, is a real passion project for him. He's very, very involved. Um, and he's just a great guy. You know, he's, his. He's not, you know, he, again, he's, he's now sort of taking off. He's becoming a movie star. Um, and it's just really great to see that he's still grounded and he still loves stand-up. And I love that he loves stand-up because it is a place where you really have, as you know well, you have to be out there in the clubs. You have to connect with people for real. It is not something you can coast through. And he does it and he goes out and he does the hard work. And I appreciate that. Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen, um, you know, he was the roast master on the, on, the, on the Franco roast. And I remember him being very reluctant to being the roast master for the Franco roast. He did not want to do that. Um, uh, and, you know, I think Franco probably... Uh, guilted him into, uh, to doing this thing. And, uh, but he gave us one of the greatest compliments 
uh, ever. After having resisted for about a month, <laughs> not wanting to do this, and resigned himself to the fact that he couldn't get out of it, he did it. And uh, coming out on the other side of it, um, he and, and Evan Goldberg both said, this is probably one of the greatest things that we've, we've done and the best response that we've ever gotten from our fans because they loved it and we loved it. And so they had a, they had a blast and, and, and that's, that's what I aspire to that they have a great time doing it because again, they are my, you know, <laughs> my, my evangelists out there telling people to do this thing. Cause it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Don Rickles. Um, I met Don Rickles on the comedy awards, um, for a brief moment, uh, in an elevator. I think other people have had the same story. <laughs> did your three-year-old step on his shoe? He too? did not step on his shoe. Uh, but he did. I introduced myself. Uh, I said, I'm, I'm Jonas Larson with Comedy Central. I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for, for doing the show. And he turns to me and he insulted me. And I, to this day, I was so in awe of being in his presence that I cannot remember what he said. But I know he said something and it was a smart ass comment. And I remember get, getting off that elevator going like, I'm glad this, this ride is over because it was, it was very, <laughs> very discombobulating. Sarah Silverman. Sarah is um, another one of those, you know, great, great comics um, that has done the roast uh, a bunch. She is an amazing roaster. She's going to be on Roast Battle. She's going to be judge on the finale, uh, which I'm very excited about. Um, but, uh, you know, she's she's one of those great kind of iconic um, comics that will be around for a long time. And I'm very excited that she is Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. Well, you know, I had many opinions of him before I ever met him. And, um, I had no idea what to expect, but I, I sort of expected this kind of bratty, you know, 20 year old to come in and, and, and wreak havoc. And, you know, while I'm sure he still has, you know, that side intact somewhere, uh, I found him to be uh, very professional, very committed to this. He really understood what this was all about, that this was about him growing up, taking responsibility and, you know, showing that, you know, he, he really has a backbone. And I thought it was really brave because he knew he was going to get slaughtered. You know, he was, he was really, you know, he was really a, like, I was really worried, to be honest, that, you know, I didn't want him to cry, you know, not that, that but I, I, I didn't want it to be like a bloodbath. And, um, and he impressed me by being always, he always, he showed up, he rehearsed, he knew his stuff, he was sincere. He's a very earnest guy, you know, he's not a guy that cracks a lot of jokes. So, you know, we had to teach him, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the, his comedy chops. But I think the fact that he was willing to learn, like he's a pop, I mean, you know, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Anywhere he goes, he gets mobbed. He doesn't have to do anything. You know, he could retire now and, you know, be, you know, live happily ever after. 
but you know, he was really, he really wanted to rehabilitate his image. You know, I don't think he did this for the fans. He did it for their parents. And, and he took his medicine like a man. And I have tremendous re uh, respect for that. Last name. And I'm sure you're going to elaborate on this one. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, America. In a way, he is the roast's greatest success story. We could have a roasty who becomes president. I, uh, you know, not that we're taking full credit for it, but I feel like we deserve a small part of the credit for, for the, tr the rise of Trump. Um, I think Trump, Trump is, a, is an interesting guy. I, I remember working on that roast and, um, and really thinking, oh, I'm going to see the real Donald Trump. I've seen that blustery guy who's out there, you know, um, hyping himself up and hyping up his projects and all that stuff. And, you know, he was sort of fun from afar, you know, but, but a bit sort of, you know, crass. And, and, and I thought, like, this will be my opportunity to see the other side. And I love this about my job. I get to see the other side of, of, of these big personalities. And I'm here to tell you that there is no other side. That is him. He is that guy. He shows up. I, I'll never forget our promo shoot. For every roast, we do this elaborate promo shoot, where it gives, giving the op opportunity for the roastee to kind of poke fun of themselves, get out ahead of some of the jokes. And obviously, the hair was one thing with Trump. Uh, so we had a bunch of promos that we shot. And, and um, I remember talking to his uh, longtime uh, assistant, uh, Rona, uh, who was absolute darling, has worked with him for 20 years. And she said to me, she's like, listen, Mr. Trump, how everybody refers to him, Mr. Trump is, uh, is very good at this. He is very efficient. He's going to show up and he's going to do his stuff and then he's going to leave. So just be ready. He said, all right, well, we, we need like, you know, four or five hours this time. She's like, oh no, that's not going to happen. You'll have 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Okay. Um, well, we'll see what we can do. Thinking, oh, I'll be able to keep him for at least an hour or two. You know, once he's there, he'll get into it. And uh, I'll never forget it. He shows up. There's like this trail of people behind him. And here he comes. And he's like, okay, so what's the first thing? And he sits down and we're like, uh, okay, here's a microphone. You know, mic him up and uh, script. And he just reads it off. And he has one sort of like, there's one tone, right? There's just, it's just Trump. There is no other side to him. There's no nuance. There's no, like, that is him. And he sat down and he did his lines. And we were like, okay, so we're done with this setup. We're hurrying on to the next setup. And we powered through this thing in about, I think it was less than 30 minutes. And I remember we were so fast that we had another crew that was going to come and shoot some stuff for our show open with him. And they were stuck in an elevator and we were losing him. And I remember going like, uh, Mr. Trump, um, can you just stand here for a second? I got to." And then I directed the whole show open from memory because there was no script. There was no producer. There was no nobody. Uh, I grabbed the camera <laughs> somewhere. I shot some stills. And I did it all myself and they showed up as he's leaving. And I remember going like, wow, by the, you know, but that is him. You know, he would, he would always stand around. He would, he would go like, he, I don't think he really understood what was funny and what was not funny, but I think he trusted the process. I mean, he was great. He was a great sport about it, you know, 
Although the best joke of the night, because he didn't laugh a lot. He's not a great laugher. And I remember sort of like seeing some of the cutaways to his face and it was like <laughs> that sort of scowl of his, you know, like and um, and Jeff Ross, uh, you know, turns around and looks at him. He goes, uh, hey, Trump, you having a good time? He's like, well, and he goes, well, why don't you tell your face? <laughs> and that was and that was that was like the, the, the joke of the night that sort of crystallized sort of like him for some reason for me. So, and there's your production experience. Like you said, an executive should have production experience and there you had it and you were able to salvage something that could have gone astray. Last few questions for your proudest moment in show business. Proudest moment. One of the proudest moments was the DL Hughley special. Um, which won a Peabody. Uh, and it was just one of those moments where I had finally sort of combined two of my favorite things in the world, which is comedy and, um, and documentary filmmaking. And we had found something that really worked and that show won a Peabody. Um, and it was it's just one of those amazing moments. I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, cause these things sneak up on you. I didn't even know we had submitted for a Peabody to be honest with you. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but you know, but it was just, when we found out it was just, it was such great because it, it was a, it was a project that, you know, you know, I championed over there along with Kent, you know, we, we had really sort of fallen in love with this idea and, and seeing it sort of go all the way and, and, and win this prestigious award was a really proud moment. Awesome. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. <laughs> I don't think it can be distilled into a singular event, but I think really seeing, you know, working from the very early days of uh, non-scripted and reality television, when it was a real sort of you know, boom town and a lot of great stuff and actually really creative, funny, uh, interesting concepts and seeing that whole uh, genre kind of take a dip into territory that I was not a comfortable with and using production methods that did not sit well with me and I didn't want to be part of it. It, it was a real, it was really disillusioning for me and a real turning point in my career because I was like, is that who I want to be? And I think I have something, and maybe it was just the projects that I was involved with. It's not the entire genre. Good stuff is being produced, but some of the projects I was involved with, it just was not something I would watch. And it was very, very disillusioning. Um, uh, and, um, and I'm glad that uh, I found my way out. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person in some obscure country somewhere in the world? Just trying to figure it out, trying to make their way to a place where they could produce and direct and also be an executive and, and have the kind of journey that you've had. And also, what advice do you have for the artist too? You know, the comedian, the the writer, the director to, to get to the next level, but also sure. what it takes for an executive to, to get to the next level. 
I think for anybody starting out in entertainment, especially someone like myself who came in with no connections, I knew nobody, nobody. I know I had no built in network. I think you, you, you have to just, you have to start, you have to commit and, and don't be afraid to zigzag. Take the opportunities that come your way, good or bad. It doesn't matter. You're going to learn every step of the way. And as long as you learn, you're going to be fine. And as long as you have a, a little bit of talent, obviously there has to be, you know, something behind it. But if you're smart and you have some talent, stick with it, man. You're going to be fine. There's a lot of people out here wanting to do the same thing. There's a lot of competition going in for the same jobs and all that stuff. But the ones that ultimately win out are the ones that outlast all the others and stick with it and never give up. And don't worry about zigzagging through life. Like I, I never finished college. I dropped out um, because I went with this crazy dream and I believed in it. And I never believed that failure was an option, even though I've had, you know, many little bumps along the way, you, you, you plow through them. You just don't, I mean, don't let it affect you. Don't let it get you down because tomorrow's a new day and new things will, will come your way. And as far as young comics and, and, and writers and, and directors, I think make stuff, go out there, go in the clubs. I mean, you know this better than anybody. Be out there, be visible, continue to write. Don't just do the same material over and over and over again. Continue to write new stuff replenish that well, keep, you know, growing your voice, finding your voice out there. I think a lot of comics, especially young, you know, comics that are starting out, you know, tend to emulate their, their idols, right? They very rarely do you find someone like a Pete Davidson, who's 20 years old and, and has a very distinct voice. Most of the time they're, they're, they're trying to find their voice by doing someone else's kind of style. And, and the only way to find your own style is to keep doing it. And eventually you'll find the, the groove that makes you tick. And I think it's work hard, work frequently, you know, don't procrastinate and keep writing. I mean, the writing process is really the most, I mean, it's like a guy like Bill Burr, who's just cranking out specials, like almost once, once a year. That's a lot of work, especially at the level that he's operating. He's one of the greatest, you know, um, stand-ups out there and and he is just putting out unbelievable special after the other and that's because he's out there and he's working through his material and he works hard and there is no substitute for that jonas larson there was a little delay there because i was mesmerized <laughs> that was awesome thank you so much a, a highlight i don't know if it can make it anywhere near the highlights you've had but i really really appreciate it and I'm so grateful you came and took all this time. Thank you so much. It was really extraordinary. Thank you, Barry. Thanks for having me. Okay. As promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary, I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary. And you can get it at the website, IKilledJFK.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend 
a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Joseph McQuillan from Fort Washington, Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Joseph. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Jessica of the September 24th variety. September 24th, 2013. The heading reads, Very refreshing. Seems more about sharing with the audience than trying to impress them. I like it. Five stars. She writes, Great insight. Refreshing to hear someone genuinely focused on wanting to share information, inspire people, and bring the listeners inside conversations they might not be exposed to otherwise. Very cool. Look forward to more shows. Well, thank you, Jessica, of the September 24th variety. Congratulations. All right, as always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.